But I knew Span all the time. Span was a dynamite musician. Span could have went on his own anytime he wanted to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was a little shy and timid about, you know, making that step. Mm-hmm. And uh, Muddy wasn't anxious to push him out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Muddy would need his Span, you know, to back him up. Sure, sure. Because Span was about the best piano player, blues piano player in the city. Right. Now, you knew Johnny Jones. You mentioned that he was at Sonny Boy's uh, place yeah. when you first went by there. Um, That's right. That's where I first met him at, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and you did the thing at the Fickle Pickle with Johnny Jones. Uh, I sure did, right, yeah. That's, I, I love hearing you on that. Um, and Johnny, too. Yeah, we were both singing the same song. I sang a verse, he sang a verse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> at that time, I was doing a little drinking, and I was young. And, <laughs> I was kind of high on that, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, Span is a little timid. You say in the course of your writing about Little Walter that you feel like Little Walter was kind of insecure. What made you think that way about him? Uh, what What did I say that made you think that? I thought you said that you felt that Little Walter became insecure. Uh, did he feel threatened by other harp players or... Um, no, I don't think that. I think he he felt a bit insecure because, uh, well, he you know he didn't have much education. Mm. Maybe that was it. But as far as a harmonica player, he he wasn't insecure in no way. You know, <laughs> as a musician, and uh, he was more outgoing. You couldn't hold him down like he was more out front than Span was. Span was sort of like. Well, you know, didn't want to make Muddy angry, I guess, or whatever. And but Span could have did his own thing too, much earlier, you know. Right. Just like he, he recorded Jimmy Rogers, you know. Jimmy was a good guy, good musician, and good singer and everything. But yeah, you know, he was very insecure and shy about, uh, you know, fronting the band, you know. I see. Hmm. He didn't have, and Leonard Chester's type of person. He, uh, Jimmy Rogers made some very good records, mm-hmm. but if you listen to his, uh, his records and you subtract LaBalta's harmonica playing from it, LaBalta was about 70, <laughs> 75% of the success of the record. Right, sure. Yeah. You could say the same about John Brim? Yeah, definitely. He made John Brim. John Brim didn't have anything going, but LaBalta's harmonica sold the record. Right. It's like it's it, it helped sell Muddy's records too, because it's such brilliant stuff. But Muddy had so much going in his own, his voice, mm-hmm. and his style, and you know, and his personality. You know, sure. see, Muddy was, wasn't intimidated at all. <laughs> but Jimmy Rogers was sort of a sh- very shy guy and laid back, and you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, if you if you didn't have if you didn't step up for yourself. Leonard wasn't going to pull you up there. He, he, he asked him, what you got, man? He got something blah, blah. He came up with all good stuff, but uh, he, he didn't have what, what uh, LaWalter had or what Muddy had. Mm-hmm. But Span did have it, but he was just shy. I guess he was just intimidated, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. for some reason. Yeah. I know I, what from what I was doing, I know Span <laughs> was a dynamite musician, and I got out there and did made a little noise. Van could have did it too, but he's just 
laid back, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then after years of he was playing with Buddy's band and everything, and everywhere they go, the audiences and the other musicians, the young white musicians would say, man, man, you, you can do your own thing, man, blah, 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 you know. Sure. This guy like that, you sort of have to, you know, push him. Right. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Otis Rush in the book. Um, it's not a long reflection on Otis Rush, but I, I, I found it uh, very interesting the way you talk about what Otis was like when he first was on the scene and called Little Otis, but um, you said something to the effect that um, every man has his breaking point. What were you getting at when you said that about Otis Rush? I don't remember saying that. Uh, oh, you did. <laughs> and uh, breaking point, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it don't ring a bell, you know. It, 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 it ain't something that jumps out to me. You know, I say, oh, yeah, what I meant. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I was talking about. Is it music or personality or what? You said um, his Cobra record stuff was good, but as great as he was, most of his records didn't do him justice. When I heard that he had started drinking and kind of acting out, I said, no, that can't be the Otis I know. Otis was real together. I guess everybody has their breaking point. Oh, okay. Yeah, what I meant by that, see, you know, when you make a few records and uh, they don't hit, you sort of like uh, some some people sort of like get disillusioned and mm-hmm. say, uh, maybe I ain't got it. But Otis had it. Ooh. Otis was a dynamite guitar player, singer, and uh, he, uh, Willie Dixon had him doing a lot of stuff. Yep. You know, and most of the Mighty Joe Young uh, made the remark about Willie Dixon song, like he was had Coco Taylor doing. It. And his song would go like this, similar. Well, see, that didn't fit Otis. Right. And it really didn't fit Coco. (laughs) But Dixon was in the driver's seat. (laughs) And they was trying to get ahead. And Dixon was Chester's right-hand man, you know. And Mm. Dixon told Leonard, you know, hey, this guy's all right. We ought to record him, you know. You know, but Otis kind of fell out with Dixon about that because Dixon wanted in the, uh, Otis made that first record about uh, I Can't Quit You, Baby, which mm-hmm. was a big one. And Otis made a few good, wrote some few songs that was pretty good himself. But then when he, Dixon was writing that stuff, and uh, it didn't fit Otis's uh, style and the way he thinking and everything. So I guess that's what I meant by breaking point, you know, sort of. Yeah. Got disillusioned, you know. Right. But he had the talent. I mean, he, he, his, his guitar playing, his singing, and, you know. Yeah. It always puzzled me that Otis uh, Rush, uh, in what you have to think of as the man's prime um, in the 1960s, didn't really make hardly any records. He, he had one single on Duke, that song mm-hmm. Homework. Yeah, and he and he showed up on that Chicago the Blues Today set uh, that, and he sang beautifully and played beautifully on that. But it, I was scratching my head for years over what happened to that, you know, absolutely extraordinary musician in in a period when you would have thought they'd be making records on him every other day. But such a long yeah. period of inactivity. Well, I, I thought the same thing, you know, because Otis was had a, a good start. 
and he was qualified, mm-hmm. and uh, his voice was qualified. He was a great singer, great uh, uh, guitarist, and he wrote some good stuff. And like I say, he got caught up with the, the, the Dixon stuff, and uh, the song just didn't fit his style, you know. Mm-hmm. He could have did better on his own. And then Otis, you know, see, in, in this music business, you start off as a star, <laughs> and you're doing all right. You have a little bad luck, maybe a couple of years, and then you sort of fade down. Mm-hmm. You got to keep it going. Look at John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson, for instance. He made Good Morning Schoolgirl in 1937. Mm-hmm. He never stopped. Right. His records was consistent from 1937 to 1947. Mm-hmm. I think it was his last session. Mm-hmm. Consistently. And he always kept up. His material was top-notch, you know what I mean? It was, oh, yeah. It, it stayed in one one thing. Now, are you familiar with Walter Davis? Yes, yep. Now, Walter Davis, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. He, a lot of people thought, he, you know, his stuff was sort of like slow and everything. Mm-hmm. But the black audiences, the adults, like my parents, yep. my, my, my aunts, and my father, like but my, my aunts and, 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 and the other Adults of the age, they love Walter Davis. Mm-hmm. And why do you think Walter Davis recorded for Lester Melrose from, I don't know when he made his first session, I guess it must have been the early 30s, you know, like 33, 34, 35, something like that. Mm-hmm. But he was consistent, and he stayed stayed there all the way because his record sold. Mm-hmm. See, Len, I mean, uh, Lester Melrose didn't, just didn't write people, uh, record people because he liked them. <laughs> Those records had to sell. Sure, you know? sure. And yeah. it was, and see, with a company like RC Victor, they a new record came out every couple of months. Right. And they, and they was recording, and I don't know. Tampa Red was a good artist, but I, he wasn't one of my favorites. Hmm. But he 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 stayed with Victor for years, mm-hmm. you know, and he recorded a lot of stuff. So it's just uh, Otis Russ was unfortunate, hmm. and I couldn't figure out why because his guitar playing was top-notch in my book. Mm-hmm. His voice was top-notch. He was a good-looking guy. He had the personality. I think I think it might have been uh, a mental. He might have, I think he sort of had like a breakdown. Mm. If I can remember, Mighty Joe Young said some, uh, some kind of way. I don't know whether one of his wife broke up or he broke up with his wife or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it got into a slump, you know. Right. And uh, and when you're relying on people like Willie Dixon writing the material and everything, it might be good for certain people. It was good for Muddy and everything. Yeah. But uh, he recorded, a, he did a lot of writing for Coco. He made a big hit for us. So uh, Wayne Dane Doodle was a, one of her biggest hits. But it didn't fit Otis's. Uh, Style, you know. Sure, I see what you mean, yeah. Because Dixon had him singing, dum, 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 I want to make violent love to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You ended up going across the street from Chess to VJ to to make, um, you know, some of your first records, and, and um, two of them um, became kind of doubly classic when they got Covered by the Yardbirds in England yeah. in the in the early '60s, um, uh, yeah. I ain't got you, and I wish you would. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Were those records strong sellers for you, Billy Boy, at the time? No, not for me, no. Uh, I Ain't Got You was a pretty good seller around Chicago, you know, mm-hmm. and around maybe some of the southern states. But it wasn't a big hit. It wasn't up there with... Uh, Sort of stuff with Muddy and the Walter. That didn't, it didn't, it, you know, it didn't stand on its own that that long. You know? I see. But the Yardbird, I really appreciate Eric Clapton and those young guys doing it because it gave me some incentive and made me feel proud mm-hmm. that I did something that other people like. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, today even those two songs are the fact that Eric Clapton and the Yardbirds and a lot of the English guys did them. You know was another star in my crown, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah. think I wish you would and uh, and I ain't got you with the first two records Eric Clapton ever recorded yeah back mm-hmm. back to back yeah did you ever have a breakthrough in terms of getting some royalty payments that were you know um, equal to the value of what you had done and the influence you had no I, I didn't get any royalty see BJ was one thing I hate to say this I know but I got to tell the truth on him please BJ was like most of those black record companies. They got all, they kept all the publishing. Mm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. Every time, the, the time, royalty time would come around, they'd say, well, you got this much outstanding, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they weren't the type of company that was trying to, they were just out for themselves. You know what I mean? Yep. And, 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 and like most black people, they kind of, uh, wasn't really into blues. They was into the doo-wop. 
Yep. And stuff like that, you know, they that was their thing. Sure. And, and uh, Jimmy Reed had made quite a few, you know, uh, hits for them, you know, records that really sold. Sure. And he was driving the Mercury. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, All right. Vivian. Who's driving a Cadillac? She, Vivian. She was, she was driving the Cadillac, and her husband was driving the Cadillac. All right. You know, they, that ain't right. Leonard, they say Leonard, Leonard had a Cadillac one time, and I think he either gave it to Muddy or, or whatever, but Leonard started driving the station wagon. Because <laughs> Leonard wasn't into it for the Cadillac. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, yeah. That was the prestige. He was, Leonard was in it because he liked the challenge mm-hmm. of building the company and making stars, and he was lucky. He had got Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and a whole lot of great people. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't just out to... Get him a Cadillac. See, VJ, all he wanted is a Cadillac that sells. <laughs> so Jimmy Reed wasn't going to get nobody to get no Cadillac. Mm, wow. He was driving Mercury's. <laughs> Man. You think so of it was all? just the way those, those, uh, those I, you know, I hate to say I'm not trying to put black people down and nothing like that, but I'm just telling like it really was, you mm, know what I mean? Mm. They were out to make some money for themselves. And if you, you, Jimmy Reed carried his own weight. Mm-hmm. True enough, Ooh, yeah. but they wouldn't. Uh, Bo Diddley wouldn't went nowhere with them. Oh, incidentally, when uh, if VJ uh, United had uh, recorded uh, Alice McDaniels, the name never would have been Bo Diddley for the simple reason they wouldn't have been looking for ideas, and I that would have came up in my mind, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Leonard was the type of person you you wanted to. Help out, you know, if you had an idea. Mm. And that's why I said, why don't you say Bo Diddley? Like, but I didn't say that because I thought that was going to be a big record or nothing like that. I just said that because that was the name, you know, that sure. I'd heard, you know, on the street. Right, right. So uh, those those type of record companies, uh, they didn't last long because they, you know, they was all out for themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And but, the United Records, uh, uh, two, two, uh, Father, uh, father-in-law and son-in-law. We rehearsed for them uh, before we went to chess. And uh, Smitty, the, the son-in-law, came up to me and Ellis McDaniels and said, you guys really want a record? I said, yeah. He said, well, go up to Mr. Allen and tell him, say, I want a record. I don't want no money. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, just like I'm laughing right now, that's the way I laugh when, when he said that. <laughs> We want a record. We don't want no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the point? <laughs> right. Uh, you know. Of course. Yeah. You know. It, so said. So I'm just showing you the mindset that they had. You know. Mm, yeah. They would have put the record out, and I would have never said the thing about Bo Diddley. And they didn't under. They wouldn't. They didn't know what to do with him. They. They. Yeah. They either either had to play straight blues for them, or do up. Yeah. Or otherwise, you know, they was out of it. And Chuck Berry, if he had probably went to there, he never would have been Chuck Berry. Right. But Leonard Chess was a different type of person. He knew when he heard something. He knew when you had something. And he brought it out. And he made it. He made himself some money, and he made you some money. He made you a star. Mm-hmm. That's the way I looked at it, you know. Do you have regret that you didn't have more of a career with Chess Records? Yes, I do, but it was only because... I, I didn't feel that I, I had my talent was up up to the standard that I wanted to be at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it had nothing to do with Leonard. 
Leonard would, you know, he would do it all he could for you if you got something going. Right. But, you know, he wasn't about just, you know, picking up, trying to build somebody that wasn't ready, you know. I see, yeah. But I would have been much better. Anybody would have been better off with Leonard Chest and VJ and those other companies. Because right. you see, those other companies, they fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. They made some money for themselves, and that was it. Right. The first time I heard you was the album you made for um, Pete Welding called More Blues on the South Side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's where I first heard you. I, I, it's where I first heard Mighty Joe Young, uh, Lafayette Leak too, and and your brother Jerome. And um, was on it. Yeah, I, I love that record, uh, and I really love the way you blow on uh, uh, on the uh, early in the morning. You call it two drinks of wine. Yeah, two drinks of wine. Yeah. yeah. Now that was a John Lee Williamson original, right? Um, well, I got that two drinks of wine from um, Junior Wells. Right. That word, the, the two drinks of wine, yep. one drink at okay. the end. Yep. No, that wasn't early in the morning. It was Johnny Williamson's song. But it was just something Junior Wells put it in. I had it, put it in there when I made that re- record, you know. Right. I think but originally it was a Johnny Williams song early in the morning, yeah. Yeah. I think Junior originally cut that as about the break of day. Yeah, about the break of day. That's right, yeah. Well, your version is beautiful, too. Um, oh, thank you. Thank and, you. And, and nice blowing and beautiful singing. Two drinks of wine, one drink of gin. Little girl put me in the shape I'm in. Come see me late in the evening after this sun go down. a stranger and I just got in your time She's 18 years old and that make her grown and you can't catch that kind of little girl at home Kept her coming late in the evening Baby, when the sun go down You know I'm just a stranger and I just got in digital things we have, these CDs and everything, I sometimes just leave that song playing like a loop, you know, and I'll, oh. <laughs> I'll listen to it five times in a row, but um, yeah. yeah, that's a nice one. Um, you were in the, in the scene, you were on the scene, of course, when players like Paul Butterfield arrived, and you write about Butterfield um, in various respects in, in your book. What, what do you remember about just the you know the sort of advent of of white musicians suddenly appearing in in on the south side. Well, I looked at it like this: when before I got into music, I mean, you know, became or tried to make records. I felt that uh, the blues was, uh, you know, if other people could have heard the blues, they might like it too. Mm-hmm. It's just like if uh, you bake a cake 
and you go to a country where nobody ever ate cake, and you say, well, they won't like cake. Well, why they people, I think. Give them a slice and see. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at it like this. When Paul Butterfield and Charlie Muswhite came on the scene, I was glad to see that because you get so much ridicule from the you know black people about blues and and blah blah blah. Mm. And when they saw Paul Butterfield and uh, Charlie Musselwhite, they say, "You mean to say white people like that?" I say, "Yeah." Oh, well then the blues must be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Seems strange, man, to me. But uh... they had a negative uh, yeah. attitude towards blues. Cause see what. I think what they was trying to do, they, they uh, associated blues with South. Mm-hmm, sure. And they were trying to, when you move to Chicago, you're trying to get away from the blues and the South. Mm-hmm. And so they look at it like this, that, but when they see guys like Charlie Musselwhite and Paul Butterfield playing the harmonica and singing the blues, and they could play and sing, they weren't just trying. They could they could do it. And they say, man, the white people, they like blues? I say, yeah, they like blues. I say, oh, well, then the blues must be all right. <laughs> Even my cousin. My cousin, that's the same age that went to Sonny Boy's house with me. Right, right, well. He didn't like blues at all, right. you know, and none of his friends. And when uh, Paul Butterfield, my brother was playing with Paul Butterfield, my cousin accepted that. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, it, it, it is all right now. <laughs> You know, that's the way they looked at it, you know. Well, but that okay. didn't bother me because it, it, it was something I wanted to do, and I was going to keep doing it and doing it to, you know, till I couldn't do it no more. Mm-hmm. Now, your brother Jerome Arnold spent a few years with the Butterfield Blues Band. He was on those first two records that, you know, are in the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all of that. Uh, were you in touch with Jerome during those years? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me see. During those years, I think I was working a day job for a while. And uh, Jerome was, you know, he wanted to get with a band that uh, was working and making money. And Paul Butterfield had a lot of potential, a lot of connections, you know. Mm -hmm. They went to New York and things like that. So, you know, he was just trying to better his position. And so uh, that's the way it went down, you know. And then Paul Butterfield uh, was instrumental in the blues being played on the north side in Chicago. Because the blues was played on the on the west side and the south side, and Paul Butterfield was a club called Big John, mm-hmm. and Paul Butterfield got the job that uh, at Big John, and it went over real big. And then he would get me. He was going out of town. He'd get me to play in his place. And the guy heard me and said, "Oh yeah, you good? You know?" And he hired me. Mm-hmm. And then that's how Muddy Waters. And they started hiring Muddy Waters. Then he hired Buddy Guy. You know. Mm. So yeah. Do you remember what Jerome did after he left the Butterfield Blues Band? Once he left the Butterfield Blues Band, he uh, started playing around with different people out in California, you know, out yeah. in San Francisco and places like that, you know. And uh, he was playing with country and western groups. Really? Oh. Yeah. yeah. He, he became a great uh, bass player, you know. Oh, yeah. But he played real good, you know. And he was playing with... Uh, country and western bands, you know, and he he didn't he didn't do try to do much singing or nothing like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, he he played with a lot of different groups, yeah. You spent part of your time doing day jobs, um mm-hmm. but you had kind of a second uh, act 
as a blues man. Uh, did it require going to England or something like that? Is that where you started making records again? Uh, well, see, the, that was that became a slump in Chicago. You know, that wasn't you know wasn't going over the, as big as it had been. Mm-hmm. You know, you you reach a peak, and then it sort of like fades down a little bit. You know, and um, and that's when you know I I had a family. I got married and got a family, and I had to make some money to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I never did stop playing. Uh, but I just, you know, then I made a couple of more records and I went to Europe, yeah. And that sort of, you know, was a good a good uh, thing, that, you know, good for my career, you know. Mm-hmm. You made a beautiful album, I think, with the Duke Robillard a few years back for that Stony Plain label. Oh, yeah. Do you like that one? Boogie and Shuffle? Yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorites, yeah. Then I think I did, did two good albums for uh, Alligator, you know. Yep. Yeah, two two good albums. I'm proud of those two. And the last one I did with Duke, Duke Robillard was uh, 
Oh, the blues soul of Billy Boy Island. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And I try to mix it up a little bit because I'm a big Chuck Berry fan. See, I, was, I could sing Fats Domino and everybody, you know, mm-hmm. when the rock and roll thing came up, you mm-hmm. know. I could do all everybody's <laughs> stuff and Muddy Water stuff. And, and you know, uh, and I mean, and do a good job of it, you know. Right. Like oh, sure. Ernie K. do sing all this stuff, you know. Mother-in-law, you mean? Yeah, well, he has to do that. <laughs> and I sang mother-in-law, do both parts, you know. Mother-in-law, mother-in-law, mother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Do all that stuff, yeah. yeah. As the blues audience really shifted away from a black audience and a kind of South and West Side Chicago audience to, um, you know, an audience on college campuses and and around the globe. Um, did you embrace that? Did you find it uh, an easy transition? And did you ever find yourself missing, you know, uh, playing at Silvio's or, or, you know, Pepper's Lounge or wherever back no, home? No, 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 I didn't. It's, it's, the, the main thing was that perform it and have an audience to appreciate what you was doing, you know. And it didn't make no difference whether I was playing at Silvio's or playing for the Queen of England, you know what I mean? <laughs> as long as I was accepted, they liked what I was doing, you know. Mm. And so that that was the thing. But the, like, the thing was is that Chicago, the, the things around Chicago kind of slowed down, you know. Mm. And it, trying to make a living at it was getting slower and slower, you know. But uh, and you got to keep making records going. You got to, you know, keep something going, you know, mm-hmm. in order to travel and all around the country and, and over overseas. Mm-hmm. And going overseas was a good good thing for me because I was already established over there. They knew who I was, you know. And when I went over there, I went over real big, you know. So... It's all good, you know. I mean, yeah. I uh, I never regretted none of it. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, nice to hear. Yeah. Uh, who, if you don't mind, who would you just name, say, off the top of your head, are your some of your favorite guitar players in blues? Oh. Well, Matt Murphy, of course, BB King. Uh, now, see, I like people like John Lee Hooker. Little Son Jackson, mm-hmm. Lightning Hopkins, <laughs> Lowell Fulson, I like this style, you know. It depends on different styles. Everybody have different styles, you know. And I, I, I like all the greats, you know what I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. All the great blues singers, uh, all the great players, you know. I liked all of them. I, I'm a fan of theirs as much as, uh, as, I don't know whether they're a fan of mine, but I'm a fan of theirs because <laughs> I buy their records, you know. <laughs> right. And I like them all, you know. Like I say, I like Walter Davis. Oh, yeah. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people. Uh, now, he was a great pianist. Who else do you like among piano players? Okay, Otis Spann, Walter Davis. Um, let's see. Who else? Uh, How about Big Maceo? Oh, yeah. yeah Big Maceo, he, dynamite. Dynamite piano player. Yeah. Henry Gray. Mm-hmm. He was one of my favorites. Uh, let's see, Johnny Jones. I like Johnny Jones too. Yeah, Johnny Jones was good. 
You speak very strongly about Elmore James in the book. You have the highest praise for him. I agree with oh. you all the way, too, but tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Elmore to me is a, one of, he, he has a unique style, and he was a, a master guitar player as Silvio. Silvio thought he was the greatest guitar player of them all. Mm. And um, he uh, he was just, he had his unique voice, and he could take that one style and go on and on and on and on with it, you know. <laughs> and, he, and he never got bored with it. Because right. he was so good at, you know, what he was doing, you know. When I was 15 years old, when I met Memphis Minnie and Blind, Blind uh, when I met uh, Big Bill and all of them, mm-hmm. 15 years old, well, Elmo, uh, was running the band at Silvio's, and they used to have the cocktail parties on Sundays, and they put three tables together and put liquor on there and everything. Mm. Of course, I didn't drink, but Elmo would let me come up and sing a few songs. Oh, know? wow. Yeah, he let me, yeah. And then, uh, Silvio saw me, well, I was 15 then, and then when, when I uh, made out what she would, I was about 19, mm-hmm. and Silvio said, well, how old was you when you used to come in anyway back then? He <laughs> thought I was I was with all the guys, you know. <laughs> I was tall kid, so my, you know, he just figured I looked young or something. But he said, "Well, how old was you then?" You know, <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, and all the musicians I used to admire all of them. You know, I just I can't think of all of them right now. But how about harmonica players? Besides oh, the... harmonica player, of course, Lil Walter Jr. Wells, uh, Lil Max Simmons. Oh yeah, mm. he was a great harmonica player. This guy uh, moved to California. Was his name George Smith? Oh yeah, he was a great harmonica player. There used to be so many harmonica players, man. I don't know where they all went, <laughs> but they when Lil Walter was popular, man, it was harmonica players galore. You know. Mm-hmm. They all converged on Chicago, because <laughs> this is where it was, you know. Oh, yeah, it was a lot of great harmonica players, too, yeah. There's a picture of you and Junior Wells and Little Walter around the time you were playing McKee's uh, uh, Disc Jockey Lounge. Uh, did you ever play together, the three of you, during that engagement? Uh, well, it was Little Walter's band, and we were, me and Junior was uh, uh, added attraction, you know, on the show with him, you know. Mm-hmm. Part of thing. Did we all just three? All three was played at one time. Yeah. No, never. Would never. I wouldn't dare do that. That <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, Walter wiped me out. Oh. Well, he Walter was so good he could he he, he might come up with anything and it just wipe you out. Mm. You did a three harmonica boogie with James Cotton and Paul Butterfield. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did that at, at the, a guy's house. And uh, I don't remember how it went and how it sounded, but that's what they called it. But uh, I relied more uh, on uh, my singing, you know, than I did the harp. Mm. I started not playing as much harp as I should have been playing, you know. Mm. But uh, I remember we did do something like that called Three Harp Boogie. Hey, hey. Let me hear Hear me, baby. Gonna tell you something. 
quit it. Hey, hey, hey. Gotta get out of here. Let's go, boy, let's go. Gotta go now. I can't praise it enough, and I, you know, what comes through on every page, not only, you know, the unique voice of Billy Boy Arnold, but your great passion and love for this music. It's it's like reading a fan's notes um, <laughs> all the way through, and and I can't thank you enough for uh, for giving this gift. And I and I wonder, you know, Billy Boy, it's, you know, we're all getting on in years, and um, and. Uh, you were prompted to do this, as I understand it, by uh, Kim Field. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And I can't believe that, you know, had Kim not done that, we might not have this great story of yours between the covers of a book. Yeah, well, see, yeah, Kim was very instrumental in it. And uh, the first person that ever, I heard other people say, oh, they would say, you ought to write a book. You know, I would talk about certain stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Say, you ought to write a book. But I just, you know, but they were just talking, and I didn't think that uh, I had enough material or story that uh, would be interesting to do a book, you know. Mm. But Kim kept uh, asking me to do it, you know, and uh, it came out pretty good. <laughs> I'm proud of it. <laughs> oh, good, good. Nice picture of you, too, on the cover. That's oh. a great cover photo. Yeah, that's a, I did that for Alligator on the Alligator oh, yeah. album. Yep, yeah. yep. Well, I'm proud that it came out. It's a story that needs to be told, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it came out pretty good. Yeah. You've seen a lot of great Chicago blues uh, people over the course of your career. You're right. I think of you as being in that generation with Otis Rush and Magic Sam and, and Buddy Guy and others who really gave a new definition, kind of modernized the blues. Um, what are you doing these days? Uh, do you play at all anymore? Oh, I haven't been playing uh, since this pandemic, you know, but uh, right. I was traveling, doing a lot of stuff with Mark Humble. Oh, yeah, Mark so, Humble, uh, yep. Yeah, a good friend of mine, great heart player. Yep. But since this pandemic, I said I, I didn't want to, you know, do any traveling because I don't want to, you know, catch the pandemic or whatever. <laughs> right. Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why, that's probably wise, you know. But um, Yeah. I heard somebody say recently that Mark Hummel has a new harmonica um, tour together. Um, well, I'm so. supposed to be on that tour. I think it's in March. Oh, okay. I think, if that's the one you're talking about. Yep, yep. But I, I told Mark I, I, I didn't want to travel right now with all this, you know, pandemic going around and, you know, Right. You, you know, it's just sure. too risky. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, I hope that the pandemic uh, subsides and that you can join us again uh, out there in the world and we can see you and and hear you once again on a stage somewhere, Billy Boy. But I'm going to say thank you very much for giving us so much of your time this evening. 
Same to you, yeah. All right. Now, I haven't given up playing, but, uh, you know, like I say, the pandemic slowed me down. You know, I don't right. uh, want to get out there. Right. Hmm. I hope that I helped you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's beautiful to talk with you, and maybe we'll do it again. But um, Okay. Thank you so much today. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 